Good morning, Grace Midtown. Oh, I love that. It sounds good. This morning is a particularly good morning. Someone say fall back. <sighs> so last night, my wife reminds me. So I'm laying in bed. It's late. We picked her up from the airport. And so I'm laying down. I'm like, man, I have to wake up in five hours. And then she gently reminds me, tomorrow is daylight savings. Yes, glory. And so today, this morning, his mercies are new. <laughs> Can I pray for us? So Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow people to encounter your tender mercy afresh today. Lord, I ask that you would anoint my words, my mind. I yield my entire being to you. Speak to your people. Let your word do its work. Father, I pray that some folks who might be coming in this room heavy with the weight of sin, guilt, shame, mistakes, doubts, and failures. I ask that you would particularly speak to these people. So come, Holy Spirit. Come in a fresh way. And the Lord's people said, amen, amen. Well, good morning once again for those who are online and also in the room. I'm excited to share the word of God this morning. My name, as Sam mentioned, is Olu Akinwande, and I'm not from Atlanta. I'm from D.C. Anybody from D.C. in the house? There we go. Have some DMV people in the house. And so I'm not from Atlanta, but go Braves, right? Come on. Man, the Lord is good. I'm particularly excited about this word because it's dear to my story. It's dear to my heart, my revelation of who Jesus is. And as I mentioned, I'm not from Atlanta, I'm from DC and my wife and my daughter, Arielle Riley, she's two years old. We traveled, someone say traveled. We traveled from DC to Atlanta for an 18 month church planting fellowship. And so that entailed that we lose or leave our job, our mortgage, friends and family to come here. And this word pilgrim is dear to my heart. I feel like a pilgrim. Not just the fact that I'm traveling and we're traveling as a family. We don't have roots, particularly in Atlanta, but also, I'm Nigerian-American, if you could not tell by my name. There we go. Nigeria in the house. But I feel like a pilgrim, particularly as it relates to the concept of justice. Me being Nigeria, Nigerian, um, there's corruption or oppression happening in Nigeria, but then there's also oppression happening with my African-American brothers and sisters. And so I feel like a pilgrim. 
I feel like I don't have a voice. And this particular passage is actually a song for pilgrims. Sam did a beautiful job talking about the purpose and the practicality of these songs of ascent. And what pilgrims would do if you weren't here last week is they would sing these songs on a journey. Someone say journey. They would sing these songs on the journey to the holy city to experience the presence of God. And particularly, these songs of ascent would have topics that would be critical reminders for people on their journey to the presence. And so within this particular sermon, we're going to be talking about the mercy of God. The Psalms, and particularly the Songs of Ascent, were prayer books where people would pray on their journey to encounter the Lord. And I just love how God in his infinite wisdom provides resources to get us ready for worship. And so this is a song of ascent, but this is also a penitential psalm. Justin did a beautiful job of communicating what a penitential psalm is. And it's simply a psalm that expresses some sorrow over sin and failure. The question I have for us this morning is, on our journey towards the presence of God, even towards coming to church, does our sin our failures and our doubts hide us or cause us to come and withdraw from the presence of God or does our doubt, sin, and failure actually fuel us to the presence of God? I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. It says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base. Base is a ancient word, it means corrupt, as, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Now, the, the truth I want to declare this morning is that God is safe enough. Someone say safe enough. He's safe enough to receive your doubts. He's safe enough to receive your sin. He's safe enough to receive your failures. He's safe enough to receive those things. And it's actually, in fact, the mercy of God that actually prepares us for worship, not perfection. So if you came here this morning in need of mercy, you're actually ready for worship. So I would love for you all to flip to Psalm 130. That's what we'll be reading from this morning. Psalm 130. And so I read, out of the depths, de profundis, that's the Latin, out of the depths have, have I cried to you, O Lord. Out of the depths, I have cried out to you, O Lord. I just love that. Charles Spurgeon says, deep places beget deep devotion. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. In other words, my humble plea for mercy. Someone say mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? But, let someone say but. That blessed but. (laughs) But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I want to repeat that one more time. But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in God. For with the Lord there's loving kindness. And with him abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And within this psalm, as you all can see, the psalms is starting from the depths. And the trajectory that's outlined in this psalm is that he goes from the depths of despair to the height of hopes. It's a journey. And it beautifully pictures and gives us the imagination of what that journey could have been like as pilgrims were journeying, journeying to the Holy Land, Jerusalem, to the temple. Let's begin at verse 4. But, with, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If you're writing notes or taking notes, I want to say this. Uncommon mercy inspires uncommon worship. Uncommon mercy provokes uncommon worship. Because with you there is pardon. That word pardon, I love that Sam mentioned the dynamics of a king. The word pardon simply means an official decree of forgiveness. And so this psalmist realizes that with God, with Yahweh, there is pardon. With Yahweh, he's not like the other kings. There's actually mercy. Mercy inspires reverence far greater than punishment ever could. I want to repeat that. That mercy that we see in this text inspires a deep awe, causes us to stand in awe far greater than punishment could. And this demonstrates the character of God, that God's definition of justice is not punitive, but it's actually restorative. And so as he's crying out for mercy, he remembers that with God, there is restoration. With God, there is forgiveness. We can actually receive mercy from this king. I'm going to jump to Luke chapter 7 because I want to unpack this note that mercy actually unlocks worship. Luke chapter 7, verse 37, and I'll read. And so this is 
when Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee. And so there was a particular woman. The Bible says that she was a sinner. Verse 37 says, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table, he being Jesus, in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vow of perfume. So alabaster is a very expensive, costly oil. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Someone say worship. Now, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples and responds. And I love that verse 40 says, Jesus answered him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So Jesus is particularly calling out a teachable moment and then talks about the parable between the two debtors. And these two debtors, one person owed 500 wages of daily wages and the other person owed 50 daily, daily wages. And then Jesus asks the powerful question. After the, 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 the parable, Jesus communicates, hey, these two people were forgiven. One 500 daily wages, the other person 50 wages. And then Jesus asks this question, so which of them will love him more? And then Peter gives the correct answer. Now the par- the, in this parable, the wisdom that we can find is that we all owe something. All of us, whether it's 500, 50, we all owe something. But the question is, are we aware of the need for mercy? Are we aware of our need? Within this parable, we realize that, man, Jesus is talking directly to the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is actually judging the sinner. Why is this person in the presence of Jesus? Doesn't Jesus know that she's a sinner? And so he's directly talking and creating this parable to help us see that our awareness to our need actually causes us to respond to Jesus extravagantly. I love verse 47. This is after Jesus kind of gives the Pharisee shade and saying, bro, you didn't, you didn't kiss me. You also didn't anoint my hair. You also didn't wash my feet. But this woman has used even her physical body in a very degradable manner to worship me. And you're actually complaining about this act of worship. And so verse 47, I love that Jesus communicates, and I'm going to read the passing translation. He responds to this act of worship and says, She has been forgiven of all her many, someone say many, many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. The awareness to our need for mercy cultivates a value for the presence of Jesus. And so if you've come here today aware of your need, I want to tell you that that's actually cultivating a value 
before the presence of God. Someone say, mercy prepares me for worship. Verse 48, it says, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. As I was praying, I was torn between this psalm and another psalm. And the Lord just kept bringing me back to Psalm 130 because someone here today needs the reminder that your sins have been forgiven. Someone here this morning needs the reminder that God's mercy is new every morning. And so the sin, the failures, the doubts that you have, Jesus has mercy for that. And then verse 49, those who were reclining at the table, men, there's always men. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? In our translation it would say, who does this man think he is? That he can actually forgive sin. And so instead of reverence, the Pharisees responded to Jesus with reproach. Their lack of of awareness to their need of mercy caused them to respond to the king with reproach. That's very convicting for me because I like perfection. I like to show up tidy. I like to show up and kind of push my need for mercy to the side. Could that attitude actually cause me to have reproach for the presence of Jesus? when he demonstrates mercy to someone who's actually aware of their need for mercy. Remember, we all owe. The question is, are we aware of what we owe? Let's go back to Psalm 130, verse 5. <clears throat> I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits my whole being, not half, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Not in circumstances, not in what I can see physically, but in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. I love this quote by a pastor, Matt, Matt Erickson. He's from Missouri in his commentary of Psalm 130, he communicates that the waiting in Psalm 130 is fully engaged waiting. Not half attentive, but fully on board. Secondly, it's not just waiting, but it's watching. A watchman cannot be off duty until finally the dawn breaks. The watchman watches with longing for the sun to rise, his eyes, his body, his very being are watching for it. So too, God gives us the mercy of waiting. I love that he uses the word mercy of waiting. Because sometimes we feel that waiting is punishment. Mercy of waiting. So that we might be drawn to him more than any other person or thing. Waiting on the Lord is a posture of worship. It causes us to actually value intimacy with Jesus more than our circumstances. 
can I be real? I'm in a season of intense waiting. My wife is in a season of intense waiting. You all have probably experienced intense waiting in 2020. When are we going to be free? When are we going to be able to not wear masks? When is the world going to go back to its normal place? We are all waiting. And so particularly for me, I am waiting. And I am a pilgrim. And it's beautiful because waiting reveals doubts in God. Waiting reveals doubts in self. Waiting reveals our deepest fears. And so in this transition, me leaving the corporate world and transitioning into full-time ministry with not, without even knowing what is next, I'm in a season of intense waiting. But one thing that has grounded and anchored me in this season of waiting has been God's word, both written and spoken. And so thank God I have a wife because she hears God when I don't. And so before we even transition into this job where we're leaving friends and we're leaving family and we're going into an uncharted territory, we're going to Atlanta, we're coming to Grace Midtown, I'm juggling between jobs. Man, it's so funny how God, <laughs> he gives you opportunities. And those opportunities are just testing you to see if you're going to choose him. And so right when I'm about to say yes to this fellowship, two job opportunities come up. And I'm like, thanks, God. And so I'm having this conversation with the recruiter. She loves me. And then she's also the hiring manager. And I'm like, okay, I'm juggling between these two decisions. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I want to serve God. And I've always felt this call to full-time ministry, but the bag. Someone say the bag. In other words, the money, right? And, <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, let me push this personal off. Let me push this recruiter off by telling them, hey, I'm just going to tell them a ridiculous salary so they can leave me alone, right? Tell them. I was like, X. Oh, no problem. <laughs> I'm like, nice. <laughs> and so now I'm torn. I'm torn between ego and pride and, and self-sufficiency or the word of the Lord. And so I just love how the Lord just speaks so gently and eloquently to my wife. And so she tells me, right, I, I'm not telling my wife about these job opportunities because she's like, oh, why are you still interviewing? You know we're going to Atlanta, right? Why are you still having these conversations? And so in this season, I'm waiting, I'm trying to discern, the Lord speaks to her ever so gently. And there's two prophetic words that she gets. The one I'm going to mention is that she gets this slingshot. This slingshot. And so I bought this from Amazon. <laughs> Two-day shipping, baby. Bought this from Amazon. In his word, do I hope. In this fellowship, I felt hopeless. In his word, do I hope. In this fellowship, I felt doubts in my abilities and the abilities of the church. In his word do I hope. I turn myself, I give my attention to the word of God that gives me hope. I just love how in the context of despair, there's always hope. What has God said to you? What has God said through your community to you? 
What has God revealed in his word? That is the place where you can find the hope that anchors you deeply. And so this slingshot means multitudes to me. Because it's in this slingshot we go back. Okay. Financially, it's definitely going back in this fellowship. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Relationally, I don't know nobody here. It's going back. <laughs> and then vocationally, what is going on? But the tension in this season is actually for it to be released in the next season. The tension that we experience is actually storing revelation about God and about ourselves. And this is stored for it to be released to others, not just you. So the tension that you're experiencing in your waiting is not against you, it's for you. And so I need this promise. I need this. Because to be honest, my circumstances look pretty hopeless. What is the word that you can actually anchor yourself in today? In the place of deep despair. Waiting is both surrender and also expectation. I just love that surrender and expectation are complete opposites. But there's tension in those words. That posture of surrender. But then also deep inside your you're anticipating how God is going to move. I've seen how the Lord moves and comes just in the nick of time. And so that's revelation from a past season, a past season of waiting. And that's released for me today. Can you go back to your story to see how the God of hope has come through for you? Watchman. Man, I don't know if I could be a watchman. Be honest. They're diligent and they have a rhythmic expectation for the dawn. There's just a discipline to watchmen. They wake up, they know it's their job to wake up, to protect, to see, and they're yearning, partly because they're tired, and they're yearning to see the dawn rise again. I just love how there's a promise within this that dawn always comes. Dawn always comes. I was having a conversation with Gregory Phillips, who probably served you your coffee. You're welcome. And I'm having a conversation about waiting because this dude is a pro at waiting. I can sense, the Bible says in James, it talks about how let patience have its perfect work, bringing you to a place of maturity, lacking nothing. I can sense that on Gregory. And then he gives me a quote. He says, watchmen don't have clocks. I'm like, that's like a sage type of <laughs> statement. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. And as I start to just think about that and muse upon that, I noticed, you're right, watchmen don't have clocks. They didn't have clocks back then. But it's because the object of their focus wasn't time, but it was the sun. The object of their focus wasn't the time. When is this going to be over? But it was actually the sun. This speaks to us as believers. Our focus isn't time, but it's the sun. It's the sun. And he always rises. That's what we celebrate on Easter, right? He's risen. The sun 
always rises. This is the hope that the death and the destruction that you're experiencing, the hope of the gospel is that the sun always rises. Translators use the word hope. This is John Golden Gay, which is fine. It's fine to use the word hope. Though it's capable of being misunderstood, we can talk about having hope or being hopeful without implying anything about the object of our hope. Hope suggests an attitude, but the words expect and wait need an object. We need, we expect something or wait for someone. So Christians are not merely people who are hopeful. There are people who are expecting Christ to come and waiting for Christ to come. The object of our hope is Christ. What fuels this hope is a revelation of both loving kindness and the limitless redemption that he possesses. I just love in verse 7, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So we see the psalmist going from personal despair to public declaration. And so the despair that you're experiencing, there's not just a hope waiting for you. But that hope is actually for others. This psalmist goes from despair to publicly declaring, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? Private revelation always leads to public declaration. Always. And so this psalmist has a private revelation of the loving kindness of God. He has a private revelation of the abundant redemption. The word Loving kindness is always used as a Christianese word, but I love how Walter Brueggemann communicates it. He uses the word tenacious solidarity. God is tenacious in his commitment to you. Steadfast love is another example. He's steady. He's consistent. He's committed. He's not flaky. He's present even when you're doubting. That can help me on my journey. That when I'm doubting his process and when I'm doubting his journey and I'm doubting his calling, he is consistent. His consistency isn't dependent on my faithfulness. It's dependent on his character. He is faithful. Walter Brueggemann says, God is an agent of tenacious solidarity who is willing to suffer with us and for us. It's one thing to believe that God will suffer for us. It's totally different to believe that God will suffer with us. One can be done at a distance. The other has to be done in close proximity. God is close to you. Even in your despair. He is tenacious in his commitment. He is the aspect, the character of God is tenacious solidarity. He is going to lock arms with you. Someone say God is willing. This commitment showcases the willingness of God. Now we're going to talk about his ability. Rede abundant redemption. Romans 8.32 says this. He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us. Will he not, will he not with him also give us everything? If God didn't withhold his son from you, why would he withhold mercy from you? His precious son. 
the generosity of God is demonstrated in him sacrificing his son on our behalf. And that actually reveals the depths of his redemption for you. There is no sin deeper than the depths of his mercy. No failure deeper than the depths of his mercy. No doubt deeper than the depths of his mercy. Those who have been in the depths of despair will openly sing of the mercy that has ascended them to the heights of hope. I want to repeat that. Because some of you all know this to be true. Where you've had hopeless seasons. Seasons full of despair. Doubts. Questions. Confusion. Frustration. Tension. You know when you taste the mercy of God, you can't help but to sing about it. You know it when you've tasted the mercy of God in the pit, when you've tasted his loving kindness, when you've tasted his gentle care, when you've tasted and experienced his commitment to you, even when you were doubting, even when you were frustrated, even when you cursed him, when you tasted that and it sends you to hope. You can't help but sing about it. Mercy provokes worship. And so as I invite the band up, I would love for us to read this prayer aloud. Because, again, we all owe and we all need mercy. And the beautiful thing about the abundance And the economy of heaven is that mercy is free and it's new every morning. And so we're going to read this as a prayer. And I'm going to read the latter portion over you all as we respond in worship. So I would love for you all to stand if you are able. And we're going to read this in unison. Psalm 130. So begin with me. Lord, I cry out to you out of the depths of my despair. Hear my voice, O God. Answer this prayer and hear my plea for mercy. Lord, if you measured us and marked us with our sins, who would ever have their prayers answered? But your forgiving love is what makes you so wonderful. No wonder you are loved and worshiped. This is why I wait upon you, expecting your breakthrough, for your word brings me hope. Pause. Let's repeat that. For your word brings me hope. I long for you more than any watchman would long for the morning light. I will watch and wait for you, O God, throughout the night. And so, Lord, we come before you in need of mercy. O Midtown, keep hoping. Keep trusting. Keep waiting on the Lord. Why? He is tenderhearted, kind, and forgiving. He has a thousand ways. He's not limited to one. He has a thousand ways to set you free. He himself will redeem you. He will ransom you from the cruel slavery of your sins. So the question I want to ask as we respond in worship, 
Where are you in need of God's mercy? Let's bring that to the altar. Maybe it's a particular habit, thought process. I know for me, I need mercy. I'm not that patient. I'm irritable. Or maybe you need mercy as it relates to doubt. You need to experience his tender, loving care, his close proximity. Let's bring these needs and use them as logs to flame the altar of our sacrifice. Let's use our doubts as sacrifices to the Lord. Let's use our needs as sacrifices to the Lord. Again, where are you in need of God's mercy?